I invite you now to take a Bible in hand. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the pew rack, you can turn to page 44. This morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. You may have heard me say this before. Verse 20 of chapter 50 is one of the most important statements in Scripture. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And you may have heard me say that this summer because this summer I did a series on the life of Joseph. Um, But I want to tell you today that this morning, though we looked at this passage, it's not a rerun from the July series that was earlier this year. I know that if you were born after 2010, you're like, what's a rerun? Well, it's a thing. Ask your parents. I bring us back to this passage. It's something of maybe an epilogue of our study of the end of Genesis and the life of Joseph. Joseph. Uh, Not to revisit issues related to God's holiness and goodness and wisdom and providence and sovereignty this morning, but because here at the end of Genesis, as one person has put it, we have an example of forgiveness that is unsurpassed in the Old Testament. Forgiving is one of the hardest things to do. It's not only extending forgiveness that is hard. For many of you, because of your guilty conscience, receiving forgiveness is extremely difficult. So I want us to take time to think about that. Our guilt and our offering of forgiveness to those who've sinned against us. Before we read this passage, let us ask for God's help this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't have to go any further to acknowledge our need. Our guilt is great and we need a great Savior and you provided for that in your Son. So help us to see him in this passage this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would be powerful among us by your word being read and expounded. That your grace would be sufficient in my weakness. That as the apostle prayed in 2 Thessalonians, your word may speed ahead, be honored, do a work in our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 50 beginning in verse 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent the message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them, spoke kindly to them. Men, that ends this reading. God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, one way that you can increase your understanding of a subject and almost enter into an experience of studying something is to look at a case study. It's a type of research where there's been careful observation and analysis of a subject or a situation in order to better comprehend something. So today we have case studies that better uh, help us understand sickness and treatment. We have case studies that help us understand why some businesses succeed and why some fail. Case studies that help us see the effectiveness of different methods of education or political campaigns. Now, maybe this is a, a little different concept for you this morning, but God in his word has provided case studies for the Christian to live the Christian life. Real historical events that are told in such a way that it helps us in our faith and obedience. So, Two times the Apostle Paul tells us about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, now these things, talking about the Exodus, took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. It was the descendants after Joseph and his brothers as they are rescued from Egypt and then in the wilderness wanderings, they didn't trust God. God gives us that account, a case study about unbelief. Also, Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We are to pick up our Old Testament and read the stories for our encouragement so that we might endure in order that we might better cling to the hope that is offered to us in the Gospel. Now, you've got to do this in such a way that you're holding on to the hope in the Gospel. There's a very dangerous way to look at the case studies of the Old Testament and to just hold them up as moral examples of how to be good and how to be holy. That's not what the Apostle Paul wants you to do with the Old Testament. He wants you to read it in the shadow of the cross. To not ignore that Jesus has come and what he has done. But to read and interpret stories like here in the end of Genesis in light of the coming of Christ. And when we do so, the Bible opens up to us a treasure trove of spiritual case studies that help our faith. And here at the end of Genesis, we have one. You might say it's two. Spiritual case study about guilt and forgiveness. Verses 15 through 18, I want us to see the torment of guilt. Verses 19 through 21. The power to forgive. Verses 15 through 18, the torment of guilt. The torment of guilt is this, that you can't make things right. You can't make things right. 
Begin in verse 15. We must take note that there's an emotional context to this exchange between Joseph and his brothers. And it's, it's heavy. It's raw. They're in the midst of deep grief and mourning. Deep pain. They miss their dad Jacob. And it's been a long period of mourning. Before his death, there's a scene where he gathers his boys. He, lay hand, he lays hands on them. And he speaks blessing and prophesies over them. Some good, some not so great, but it's, these men have just gone through watching their dying father give them his last words. And then he dies. But he's given a unique treatment among the Israelites. He's, he's mourned as the Egyptians mourn. And they embalm him, which is, which is not a, a Hebrew practice. But it ended up working out well because Jacob insisted on being buried in Canaan's land. So the embalming a step of faith, saying that we're going to go bring our dad back to the land that God promised to his grandfather, bury him there. And that was after a period of mourning in Egypt with great pomp and circumstance, remembering Jacob. And these brothers travel together. They leave their dad's body there and return to Egypt. Then, Verse 15, fear arises. In this raw, vulnerable, emotional time, fear grips Joseph's brothers. And why does it say that fear gripped him? Maybe Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Well, guilt is laid upon their conscience and an old sin but a grievous sin has been left unresolved between the brothers and Joseph. There's a, a tension that, at least from the brothers' side, has remained between them and their brother. Is this fear justified? Well, in one sense, it's, it's, it's not. They have now been living in Egypt for 17 years, and they have known nothing but Joseph's kindness. And in Genesis 45, he as much tells them, I will not hold your sin against you anymore. Yet they hold that in suspect. They fear. Their fear isn't rational, but it's arising out of their guilt. And it is somewhat appropriate because they, they did horribly sin against him. If you're not familiar with the Joseph story, this is the the boy who was the favorite son among brothers who was given special treatment by his father and hated by his older brothers. And when he goes out to check on them, his older brothers hate and despise him so much that the first decision is that we should kill him. And then they said, but if we do that, we won't make any profit. And so they despise their little brother so much that they sell him into slavery and said, this is as good as seeing him dead. 
This was their crime. This is the guilt. It's important for you and I to recognize that there's a, an idea that sometimes people might tell you when you're in such a state where emotions are raw, you're going through pain, grief, mourning, sorrow. The saying is, time heals all wounds. It's false. It's not true. Wounds may take time to heal, but time is not the medicine. It may be part of the prescription, but time will not mend. And more importantly, in these brothers, what do we see in this case study? That guilt does not go away with, does not disappear because of time. Carry it with you if it's never been dealt with. Many of you know this all too well. There are things that you did a week ago, weeks ago, months ago, years ago, some decades ago that still haunt you today. Things that you were terribly ashamed for, ashamed of. You try to avoid the memories, but occasionally that pop up and the guilt remains. What is the past sin that you are still carrying with you this morning? What is it that's burdening your conscience? What is unresolved? How do the brothers deal with this guilt? Well, it's a mixture of good and bad. We'll deal with the good of their confession later. But first, we need to think about the bad. They lie. They lie. I, I think it's, it's, it's evident from the text that Jacob never grabbed the brothers apart from Joseph and said, when I'm dead, tell your brother that I told you to forgive Jacob had plenty of opportunity to. We have an entire chapter where he's giving his final words. He certainly could have done it, and it could have been recorded. But these brothers, out of fear and out of a guilty conscience, then add sin upon sin and lie to their brother. And I believe Joseph knows this. This is part of his weeping when they come to him. He knows that they have fabricated this story, that they don't trust him, that they think his, his kindness to him has been a uh, a fraud and not real. Here's the truth. You, this is true about all of our guilt. You, you and I cannot atone for what we have done wrong. And oftentimes, our attempt to make atonement for things only will make things worse. I want to be clear that the Bible, whenever possible, requires that you and I make restitution for the wrongs that we've committed. And that is the righteous and the just thing to do. Restitution is important. It's a fruit of repentance. It's a matter of temporal justice in this world. But restitution does not atone, take away guilt. So think about it. What are the futile ways that you've attempted to deal with your guilt? Has it worked? Do you try to numb? Do you try to overcompensate? Do you hide? Is it lies piling up on lies? How have you attempted to deal with your guilt? 
But we can't just think about it guilt in terms of horizontal relationships. No, it's, it's, it's always a, a vertical aspect, our, a relationship to God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 says, so if you're offering your guilt at the altar there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Joseph's brother's sin wasn't just against him. Ultimately, their sin and all sin is against the Creator. When you harm those made in the image of God, you are sinning against their Creator. So that's why in Psalm 51, David says, Against you, you only, speaking of the Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which is quite a statement. The sin that David is repenting of and confessing before and to the Lord is such a, a, a web of sin and destruction. He has taken another man's wife in adultery and he gets her pregnant. And he tells Bathsheba to go home when she tells him. And then he calls her husband who's faithfully serving in David's army from the battlefield, tries to get him intoxicated and going home to spend the night with Bathsheba. And Uriah remains faithful and doesn't do it. And you see here David trying to deal with the guilt, the lies, deception piles up. He tries again to get Uriah to go home and eventually... The prevailing plan is to put Uriah on the front of the battlefield in order that he might die in battle. Adultery leads to murder. God's king. He's trying to deal with his guilt on his own. And the mess gets bigger. Same is true for you and I. This is what's happening with Joseph and his brothers. There's nothing that you can do to fix your guilt. There's nothing we do to contribute to our salvation. This is what, for some and for many, and maybe for you at some point or right now, makes the gospel difficult to embrace. We want to play a part in making things right. We want to contribute. We want to be part of the remedy, but... Ultimately, we cannot. This is why, as I referenced earlier in the service, the Protestant Reformation was so important. The free grace of the gospel was being veiled by a distorted form of Christianity in which the Christian contributed to their salvation. There was grace, but it required the individual's participation with grace to secure forgiveness and salvation. But it wasn't a new problem 500 years ago. It was the same problem that Paul addressed in Galatians. For them, in Galatia, it was believe in the grace of God, keep the law. Grace plus keeping the law. And as it's been said before, it's a damnable plus because it negates free grace. And it is not the gospel. So as Martin Luther put it, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe in this. 
and everything is already done. Again, Martin Luther, he is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. That is the gospel. Only the cross can deal with my guilt and your guilt. Only the cross of Christ provides atonement for sins and sets the guilty soul free. Only the cross can cleanse your conscience and set it free from shame. It's not the cross plus, but only the cross. Would you take your guilt there this morning? Would you stop trying to make atonement for yourself? Then verses 19 through 21. The power to forgive. We see here. There's a transition in the text. If the first couple verses, it's the brothers speaking to Joseph. Now it's his response to them. The power to forgive comes from being forgiven. You may have heard this. You may know this. I want to remind you of it this morning. The power to forgive comes from being forgiven. And can we just say it? Forgiveness is hard. It is not uh, appropriate to belittle how much is demanded of the victim and just say, just forgive. Forgiveness is terribly difficult. Sure. Admitting you're wrong and asking for forgiveness is humbling to your pride and is a difficult thing to do, to admit your sin and how you've hurt someone. The greater difficulty is for the person who's been sinned against. That sin has taken something from you. It has caused a wound. It's something that the person who hurt you on their own cannot repay. This is the case with, with Joseph. His brothers, after years of hating him, it comes to a point and they, they make this horrible decision and they commit this horrible sin against him and then they, they go on with their life. The, the guilt remains on their conscience, but they go on. Joseph is reaping the consequences of what has been done to him for years and years and years. Sold into slavery. Placed into prison. It was more than just a bad afternoon for Joseph. It was pain upon pain because of this, what was committed against him. And for those who've been sinned greatly against, he's be said that time doesn't heal. There must be the hard work of forgiveness. Otherwise, heart grievances, when they're repressed, they poison the soul of the victim. Forgiveness is hard because it requires something of the victim. We see it in the passage, verse 20. Joseph, he can't sidestep the issue. He must Acknowledge what has happened. Verse 20, you meant evil against me. Forgiveness requires honesty. It's being willing to say 
hard things to those who have sinned against you. We, we don't want to rush into this sort of conflict or confrontation. And it may be someone who's close to us, who's hurt us so, and to really name what they've done, it's a sense reliving what they've done to you. It's honesty is demanding. It's, it's exposing the wound. But forgiveness requires it. Joseph can't say, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's not talk about that anymore. They've said we've sinned against you. And what's, what's good about their confession is that there's four words that the, and we have in Hebrew for, for sin and evil. And their brothers in their confession, they use three of those words. They, are, they didn't get everything right, but they got that right. That they have sinned against Joseph and Joseph then names it as well. Forgiveness requires honesty. Then in verse 19, Joseph, as they come to him, he says, for, I, for am I in the place of God? For am I in the place of God? It's a remarkable thing. In one sense, he is in the place of God for his brothers. He could do like this, and they're done. Everything is taken from them. They are extinguished. He could throw them in the pit. He could throw them in the prison. He could take their life immediately. But he refuses to stand over them. He refuses to personally be vindictive and try to take back what they took from him. And he steps out of the way and says, I'm not going to play God. That's part of what's happening in your heart when you're unwilling to forgive and you hold on to resentment and bitterness especially when someone comes seeking forgiveness. But it's hard. It requires humility on the part of the victim to say, I will not stand between you and the God who revealed himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The third thing required of forgiveness is in verse 21. Joseph says, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Seems so unfair, but real forgiveness from the heart requires action. Real action. This is required of forgiveness. If I forgive you, if I release you, if I'm not going to hold this debt against you, then it should be evident in my actions. But it's not just in actions. There it says that he spoke kindly to them. Literally in the Hebrew, it's he spoke to their heart. He could have said, you're forgiven, just never step foot in my presence again. I will take care of you and your kids I'll make sure that you have security and food for all your days, but do not ever show your face to me. Doesn't. He speaks to them, to the heart. He pulls them near. Come near. We're brothers. This is what forgiveness requires. 
Dear friends, someone has sinned against you. It's time. It's time to forgive. Quit letting it poison your soul. Seek reconciliation. So what? Be honest with them. Humble yourself. Be kind to them in word and in deed. Man, let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. That's not the end. That is impossible. You and I cannot do that apart from God's power and grace working in our lives. Apart from knowing the grace of God in the depths of our being. It's been said, where does the power to forgive come from for Joseph? As one commentator put it this way, the question arises whether it is possible to attain Joseph's generosity of heart without his theology. For it is clear that he found the motivation and the power to forgive through God's dealings with him. He found the motivation and the power to forgive because of God's dealings with him. He doesn't lessen the sin that was committed against him, but he sees how God has used it in his life. And he sees that, recognizing that he himself is a sinner with whom God has shown much grace to. That God has never left his side. That God has exalted him into second command in Egypt. And having experienced and received the grace of God in a fallen sinful world, from that theology, that well, he offers forgiveness to undeserving brothers. Joseph doesn't get to see as clearly as what you and I get to see in the cross. That God himself did everything required of forgiveness in order that our guilt could be taken away. In the cross, we see God's honest assessment of our sin. What does it deserve? The death of his innocent son. His full wrath and judgment towards our rebellion. In the cross, we see God himself in the person of the son humble himself he enters our world as an infant, lives a life of complete and total obedience, only then to give that life in the place of those who deserve the wrath of God. On the cross, we see how far God was willing to go to secure Forgiveness, take away the guilt of his people. We have a better view than Joseph does. Let it sink into your soul. And from there, the person who has done terrible harm and crime and sinned 
against you time and time again. Offer them the forgiveness you receive in Christ. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 32. These brothers, as they come and try to make things right with Joseph, they get a lot of things wrong. But in their confession, they do get something that's right. They, they know that if things are going to be fixed, God has to do it. In verse 17, the brothers tell Joseph, please forgive the transgression of the servants, the God of your father. John Calvin put it this way. It is as if God stands between them to produce reconciliation. It's no longer their sin and their guilt between them and their brother. They need God to stand between them. Where do you get the power to forgive? Put the cross between you and your offender. How do you have the the gall to seek forgiveness? You go to the cross and through the cross to one another. If you're carrying the guilt of your sin, what you've done against others, or it could be things that were done secret and not against others, the only way to deal with that guilt is to put the cross between you and your Creator. Jesus invites any sinner to come and know God as Father through His cross. To shed your guilt there and to be welcomed into His family. Dear friends, any who hear that invitation and come will not turn away. And he welcomes home. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Man, let us pray. Our great God and Savior, we come today acknowledging our need. It goes far beyond anything that we can do. There is nothing we can do to be right with you. There's nowhere else to turn but to the cross of your son Jesus. And this morning we turn there. And from there, we lay down our burden of guilt. And from that experience of real, true, and free grace, Would you set us free to forgive those who have hurt us? That the gospel might be shown to be powerful in our lives. May we be unashamed that we have done nothing to contribute to our salvation but have been rescued such a great Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.